there are six United States that still follow a very interesting legal regime. It is a tort that one can pursue at the common law, a tort being a wrong that one other person commits against someone else. Six states recognize the tort called alienation of affection. Alienation of affection. Alienation of affection requires proof, if you were to bring a lawsuit against someone else, of at least three things. First, is that you had a marriage relationship that contained love and affection. You actually have to demonstrate that you actually had love and affection in your marriage. The second thing is that that affection that you had with your spouse was alienated or destroyed. Your affection with your spouse was destroyed. And thirdly, the third aspect of this that you must prove is that someone else did it. That some person stepped into the affection and love that you had with your spouse and destroyed it. And in those six states, if that happens, you can sue the person who alienated the affection of your spouse. North Carolina is one of them. I read of a large judgment, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that I think it was a husband got against a man who had allured the affection of his wife and had caused the breakdown of their marriage. You can actually sue the person who steals the affection of your spouse. Now, Minnesota's not one of them. Minnesota's not one of them. I thought of this tort of the alienation of affections. As I reflected on this wonderful book of Hosea that was so meaningful to me when we read through it most recently through our Old Testament Bible reading passage. This whole book was just seemed really helpful to me in this time through because Hosea is a love story. But Hosea is a very, very odd love story. It is the love story of the alienation of the affections of God's spouse, the spouse who is depicted as the children of Israel. Their affection toward God has been alienated. It is the story of the judgment and discipline and correction of God as the husband toward his people of Israel. But beyond that, it is the picture of God and the promise of God alluring the affections of his spouse back to himself. In chapter 2 of Hosea, did you hear as we read through these three chapters together, this word in verse 14 of chapter 2, therefore behold, God says, I will allure her. Do you know what that word means? We don't use the word alluring probably very much. The word allure there has the idea of enticing. In fact, the same Hebrew word is used in Proverbs 1 when in a very negative context it says, My son, if sinners entice you, don't go after them. And now God is speaking, and he's speaking to this woman, this depiction of his spouse, the children of Israel, whose affections have been alienated from him. He says, I will entice her back and I will speak comfortably literally tenderly or in a friendly manner 
to her and their relationship will be restored. You see, this is a love story not only between God and his people, it's a love story between Hosea and his spouse. Why did we read all three chapters? Because you need to read these three chapters together to really understand what's going on. God decided, God called his prophet to live out the story of God's spouse has having her affections alienated from him and then ultimately allured back to him. The title of the message tonight is In Alluring God. In Alluring God. And in this Christmas season, I would like to present to you from this Old Testament minor prophet the depiction of who God is as an alluring, enticing God for the affections of his people even when those affections have been alienated from him. And I want to look at this in three different perspectives. First of all, we're going to look at a parable in chapter 1 and then continued in chapter 3. A parable between Hosea and his wife Gomer as being a picture of this relationship between God and his people. Secondly, we'll look at the purposes of God in alluring his people back to himself. And thirdly, we'll look at a pattern that I think we can safely ground ourselves in, in knowing in alluring God who is drawing our affections back to him. Let's start first of all with this parable, a parable of Hosea and Gomer. Now children, I'm going to be giving you some trivia questions, some quiz questions tonight. You might want to know the names of these characters and the names of their children just in case it comes up a little bit later this evening. First of all, let's look at this relationship in this parable. Will you start with me in chapter 1 and verse 1? The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri. Now, we know nothing about this guy other than what's here. We don't know even exactly the time he was prophesying. Other than that, it was in the days of these kings. Notice he says, a variety of different days of the kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and then in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. This is Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was a very prosperous king. He reigned for over 40 years in the land of Israel. And under his rule, even though he was a wicked king, Israel flourished in prosperity. Actually, if you go back to the, to the books of Kings, you can see that that Jeroboam II actually brought great military victory to Israel. He captured land back from Syria. It was, uh, Israel was prospering materially. And it was in this context that Hosea was prophesying. Most likely, Hosea was in the northern kingdom of Israel, not in the southern kingdom of Judah. He refers to the king of Israel as our king. Later in this book, it's probably he was a prophet situated in the generally apostate land of the northern kingdom of Israel, not in the at least somewhat revived um, land of the southern kingdom of Judah. Verse 2 says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. The very natural reading of this is that God gave an unthinkable command to his prophet, go marry a prostitute. 
Now, some commentators so turn from this, just revolt from this idea that God could call his prophet to marry someone who was in this immoral state, that they say this is just God pointing ahead to the, that she would be unfaithful, that she would act in this kind of adulterous manner. And it could be, that's possible. But if you were just to look at it from the very beginning, God is just very saying clearly, whether she is engaged in that right now or she will be engaged in that in the future, I want you to marry someone who you know at her core is immoral. She is not faithful. She will not be loyal to you. Now go marry her. What an unthinkable thing for us who are married. I mean, honestly, what's our kind of checklist of the kind of spouse we're looking to marry. Imagine God telling you, this person's going to be unfaithful in the most painful way possible. Now go marry her. What a remarkable thing. Now notice what God says. This woman produces children. Verse three, so we went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Gomer was the name of his wife, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, call his name Jezreel. Now what a very interesting name. Hebrew names had meanings. The name of Jezreel literally means God sows or scatters. And the picture here that God is bringing out is that this would be a symbol, a parable of God's judgment on the house of Jehu for what happened at Jezreel. Now, we don't need to go back and understand all of it. You could go study this on your own. What is the connection? Do you remember when God raised up an Israelite king named Jehu to utterly take vengeance and judgment, God's judgment against Ahab and his entirely kingly line? It turns out that this great bloodshed went down at Jezreel. That was the place where the kingdom was. Jehu brought, he wiped out scores of Ahab's descendants. Remember, he brought the entire people, the worshipers of Baal, all into the temple of Baal and had all of them slaughtered and killed. Guess what? God was grateful that that Jehu was carrying out his judgment on Ahab. Guess what God was not pleased with? The utter slaughter that Jehu brought about. He actually went over and above, it appears, God's calling on him to execute judgment on the people of Ahab. And God says to the kingdom, to the line of Jehu, I'm coming for you next. And notice what he says here in verse 4. I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. Who is the house of Jehu? Jeroboam II, who is the king at that line, and going down through his lineage. So God has a first child for this that is portraying judgment on the people of Israel, specifically on the house of of Jezreel. Look at verse 6. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. Now I just want you to note something very here that should be very, very challenging to us. God said to take a a wife of whoredoms and and children of whoredoms. It is not at all unlikely that these next two children were not Hosea's children. But Hosea was called on to raise them as his. Now notice what it says. And she conceived a son and bare a daughter. Or she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, call her name Lo-Ruhama. You know what Lo-Ruhama means? No mercy. Now, I wouldn't have liked to be Lo-Ruhama when the discipline came around. Uh, hey, uh, child, daughter... Uh, go fetch the rod of discipline, no mercy. <laughs> no mercy, go get, literally, this is what her name was, no mercy. And God says, this is a parable. No mercy is what I'm going to have on the children of Israel. Then she 
conceived again. She bore another child, and she called her name Loami. Literally, not mine. Not mine. Not my people. This is a challenging parable to live out. This has caused some people to say, well, Hosea was just telling a story here. This actually didn't happen. We have no reason to believe that. Absolutely none. God called his prophet to live out this parable. And if you turn over to chapter 3, will you? Turn over to chapter 3 and verse 1. Then said the Lord unto me, go yet, go again. Love a woman beloved of her friend, yet in adulteress. Now, it's unclear whether it's, it's beloved of her husband or beloved of another man. But the point is simply clear. She was now living in adultery and perhaps even prostitution. How do we know that? Because notice what happens. Verse 2 says, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. He purchased his wife back. From whom? It would be consistent with the idea that she had fallen into the greatest degradation of essentially prostitution and slavery. He bought his own wife back. And God said, go love a woman who is an adulteress. Go buy her back. Do you, and just, these are just small details, but I think they're important. In the Old Testament law, the price of a slave was 30 shekels. You saw this of a, of a bond servant we see in the Old Testament. Scripture says that, that Hosea was to buy her for 15 shekels and parts of a homer, a homer and a half of barley. It's likely that Hosea may not even have had enough cash to get the whole 30 shekel price. So he paid in cash and goods in barley and redeemed his own wife back to him, perhaps at a great financial cost. How many of us would be willing to pay that price for someone whose affections had been so alienated toward us, who had acted so shamefully and wrongfully toward us. God says to Hosea, I'm calling you to do this. Why? According to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. The idea here may be of these kinds of cakes of grapes or raisins that were presented as a sacrifice to other gods. That may be the idea of what God is saying. But again, just, just take the human side of it. The human parable of expressing sacrificial love of redemption for this spouse who has broken your heart, who has acted in shameful ways, who has now fallen to the lowest forms of degradation. And you call her back. That's the parable that God is acting out for a picture of his relationship to his people. Now notice secondly here, the purposes of God. Now go back to chapter 2, will you? Go back to chapter 2 because this is where we're going to park. Where God is painting out this picture, fleshing it out that Homer, at Hosea and Gomer are acting out for his people. Notice what he says in verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. He says in verse 5, For their mother hath played the harlot, a prostituted herself. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. He goes on to say in verse 13, will you look? 
He said, I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. What was the source of Israel's adultery toward God? Notice what God says, you forgot me. You forgot me. Just like a spouse could have her affections alienated from her husband or a, 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 a husband from a wife and forget, put it out of her mind, put it out of his mind in the same way God says, you forgot me. Now we need to dig down into this a little bit. What happened to the children of Israel? Notice what he says. In verse 5, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. What was this time period in Israel? It was a time of prosperity under Jeroboam II. They were wealthy. They were doing well politically and militarily and economically. And they looked at the things that they were receiving. And who did they say? I'm not getting them from Jehovah. I'm getting them from someone else and their affections were allured. Look with me for just a minute, Hosea 13. If you just flip over a few chapters to Hosea chapter 13, look at what God says in verse four. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. According to their pasture, so were they filled They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Why did they forget God? Because they got proud. And why did they get proud? Because they got stuff. They got rich. They got possessions. You know, we could say it this simply. Their affections were alienated from God by their possessions, by the blessings of God. Why? Because when they got those blessings, they didn't recognize them as being from God. They reflected, they thought they were coming from something else that they could turn to. Their hearts forgot God. And then notice what else God says to them. Not only have these, have they attributed God's blessings to their other lovers, their other gods, Verse 8 says, For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold. Now listen to this. Which they prepared for Baal. They used for Baal. Spending God's blessings on someone else and their hearts being lifted up in pride and ignoring God. Can we say it like this? Pride begets forgetfulness toward God. And forgetfulness toward God besets, uh, begets a kind of self-centeredness that is willing to spend it on myself and pursue my own selfish pursuits. This is the perspective of Israel. They had forgotten God even in the place of his blessings to them. But notice secondly here in the purposes of God, notice his pursuit of them. His pursuit, God says, comes in two different ways. Notice what he says. The first thing he does is loving correction. 
Notice what he says in verse 9. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness and now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her solemn feasts. God's holiness says there must be correction done on this. There must be judgment brought upon them for the alienation of their affections. And God says what that's going to look like, it's going to be taking away the possessions that they were spending on their idolatry. God says, I'm going to take it away. You know, friends, I'll just say this. There is a loving corrective of God to bring us low. There is a loving correction of God sometimes to give, bring us into difficulty and trouble and tribulation when we have been out in spiritual idolatry pursuing what is ultimately forgetful, prideful, and self-centered against God. But notice, secondly, what God says here in verse 14. Not only is his loving correction pursuing them, but he also is alluring them. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably under her, and I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. He was going to bring her back, this unfaithful wife, and speak tenderly and friendly to her. He was going to entice her back to himself. Notice what he says, I will give her the vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Do you remember where the valley of Achor was? Or what the biblical significance of that was? Who... Who named the valley of Achor? Joshua. Why Joshua? Do you remember a guy named Achan? A guy who troubled Israel by taking away the, 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 the Jericho loot, leading to God's judgment on his people. They raised a heap of stones over Achan. And do you know what they called it? The valley of Achor, the place of trouble. And now God in Hosea points back to that valley of trouble and says, do you know what that valley of trouble is going to be? It's going to be a door of hope for you. It's going to be my purposes to take your trouble, your national trouble, and open a door of hope and of a future for you. This is God alluring and enticing his people. And notice then what he says to them, this perfection of his relationship with them. Look at verse 16. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Baali. We'll get to that in just a minute. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. He goes on to say how he will create new prosperity for them. He will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Now listen to this. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel. What? Where did we hear Jezreel before? What does Jezreel mean? God sows. In chapter one, that was the name of Hosea's firstborn and it meant God's bringing judgment to scatter 
over Jezreel, the place where Jehu shed so much blood. Now what is he saying? Jezreel is going to return, but now it's going to be me scattering the seeds of corn and wine and oil. It's going to be a place of fruit. Notice what else he says, verse 23. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. What was Hosea's secondborn named? No mercy. And what does God say? Her name's going to be mercy. And then what does he say? And I will say to them which were not my people. What was the name of Hosea's thirdborn? Not my people. And now what does God say when he's enticing his people back to himself? You're my people. You are my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. It's like this parable is coming full circle from God naming, using Hosea as a parable to express his judgment on his covenant people. Now he is alluring them. He is enticing them. He's drawing them back to himself to a period of great national prosperity for the people of Israel. You say, Pastor, when's that coming? It's not yet. Do you know chapter 2 that we've just been reading hasn't been fulfilled yet? But it will be one day. It will be one day when all Israel will be saved. And there will be a millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ will reign in the historical land of Israel as the Messiah and King for a thousand years. And all of these promises of God to his Old Testament people will be perfectly fulfilled. And God will have allured and enticed his unfaithful bride back to himself. Man, that just makes my heart sing. And I hope for you too, you just say, Lord, make it happen. Make it come to pass. Bring forward all the purposes that you have for your Old Testament people. You say, well, how does this relate to us? Thirdly, I want to close with what I'm going to call a pattern. Can we apply this parable, this picture, this, these purposes of God for his Old Testament people to ourselves? Well, I think we can for a couple reasons. The first thing is notice in verse 23 of chapter 2. Notice what he says. I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. Do you know that verse is quoted in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9? When God is speaking through Paul to the Gentile people, and listen to what Paul says, as... He saith, saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Paul is quoting these passages from Hosea to give us comfort that God has called us as his Gentile people into a new covenant with him that is rooted in Jesus Christ. So I think this pattern, we can say, is appropriate to us, that God is alluring us, that God has enticed us in his son to a marriage relationship with him. How did he do that? He did that in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 27, how many pieces of silver did they give for Jesus They gave 30 pieces of silver, the priest did, to the traitor. It was the price of a bond slave. God purchased us back, if you will, at the price of his 
only begotten son, his beloved son. He has ransomed and redeemed a people who deserve no mercy, who were not his people. But he said, you will be my people and on you I will have mercy at the price of his son. And now he has entered into in with us to a betrothal. He has betrothed us to himself. He has called us the bride of Christ. And one day we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when our relationship with him will be brought together eternally. And he as our husband and we his church as his bride forever. That is the picture that God is bringing out for us here of the love in Christ that he has commanded us. And that means that we should recognize the temptation, the same temptation that the Old Testament people of God had and succumbed to. It was what? It was the alienation of their affections. Do you remember some passages that we've been reading recently as we've been going through our New Testaments? James chapter 4 looks at the people of God that he was writing to and he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He says, do you know what it means to love the world? It means when your affections are alienated by the world around you, you are committing adultery. Against God, your affections are alienated from him. In the same way, 1 John 2 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The truth for the Old Testament people of God is the exact same truth and the exact same testament or, uh, uh, temptation for the New Testament people of God. It's that our affections will be alienated from the one who has redeemed us by the blood of his son, who has bought us with the price. It means that we are tempted on a daily basis to just like the Old Testament people of God take the blessings that he has given us and rather than being enticed toward God in gratitude and humility and thankfulness and loyalty we turn our affections and pursue them elsewhere. We can love the world where the gifts that God gives us become, can we say it, ends in, of, in and of themselves. We pursue the gifts. We pursue the blessings in self-centered ways, in prideful ways, in forgetful ways, rather than taking them all from, as the hand of a loving God who is alluring us to himself. You see, this ultimately is a, a pattern we can see repeated in our own lives over and over again. When we don't realize that God, as, as Paul tells Timothy, has given us all things richly to enjoy, and instead we realize we put those good things that God has given us as the things we pursue for their own value, for our own purposes, for our own idolatry, and our affections are alienated toward God. Friends, this is, as, as in tr is true in something as simple as food. 
God says every creature of God is good and nothing to be received and to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. God says when you sit down for a delicious meal, let it be with an overwhelming heart of gratitude that this is my gift to you, that this is what I am blessing you with as a means of drawing your affection to me. In this Christmas season, every good thing that comes, every blessing, every gift that you receive, whether that's time with your family, whether that's gifts from one another, whether that's the joy of singing our Christmas carols together, ask yourself, is this out of a heart of just unfeigned gratitude toward God that he is pouring out his love and affection on me as his child, as part of his beloved spouse? Or am I taking those good things and pursuing them as an end in and of themselves. Give me, give me, give me. You know, you'll see this at, at, at Christmas time with children. When the number one thing on their mind is what's under the tree, what do I get? You know, the very concept of Santa Claus is really opposite to the gospel. Because the, you think about the song, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Wow, who does that sound like? He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness sake. The whole concept that gifts are something that I get for being good and not bad is the exact opposite of the gospel, which says, guess what? You are bad. And you've been bad. And the one who knows if you've been bad or good is showering his blessings in Christ upon you, not because you have been good, but because he's been good. And because he is pouring out his grace on you. Friends, don't let the Christmas season be that which draws your affection away from the giver of every good and perfect gift. Let the Christmas season and its natural and family and other blessings be that which causes your eyes to look upward every moment and say, God, thank you. What a loving, alluring, enticing God you are. Friends, but we should close here. The truth of the matter is that just like God was pursuing the affections of his Old Testament people, he's pursuing your affections He's pursuing your love. I want us to just point out one verse here that I think is just a wonderful example of this. Will you notice in verse 16 with me of chapter 2? And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi and shalt call me nor, no, no more Baali. Do you know what those two words mean? Ishi literally means husband. You will call me husband. Do you know what Baali means? Master, Lord. Now there's, I think, two meanings here. The first thing is that God says immediately after, for I will take away the names of Balaam out of, their, out of your mouth. I don't want Balaam anywhere near them. But do you know the difference between those two things? God says, you're going to call me husband. You're not going to call me master. You see why? How do you relate differently to a husband than you do to a master? It's this, a master requires no affection. It doesn't matter whether you love them 
or you hate them. You just do what they say. But that's not true of a husband. A husband is to be a person of affection, to be a person of love, to be a person in which there is that intimacy of relationship and fellowship and friendship. And it's as if God is saying to his people, one day, you're not going to know me just as the boss. You're not going to know me just as the slave master, as the Lord. You're going to know me as the object of your greatest love and affection. Friends, God is Lord. He is boss, he is master, and we submit to him and we kneel before him as such. But God says, I'm not just that. I want to be the one who is the object of your affection, of your knowledge and love, like the best spouse. I want your affection for me. And that leads me, friends, to just what was a a challenging question I think for myself this week, is my relationship with God more like Baali or is it more like Ishi? Is my relationship with God on a daily level more like, all right, you're the boss, I guess I gotta do what you say. Or is my relationship with God the intimacy and love and affection of one who says, you have earned and taken my, all of my love and I will walk in that tenderness. Notice what Hosea says to the people of God in verse 20. He says, God says, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. You will know me as the source of your great affection. Go back to the New Testament ideas we were talking about. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 4? Paul's prayer to the people of God was that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would be able to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what God wants for you, to know him and his love above all. Jude, verse 25, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the affectionate, intimate relationship with the one who pours out his blessings on you to allure you and entice you into a closer and sweeter relationship with him. Remember, friends, your great temptation is the temptation of Gomer, the temptation of the Old Testament people of God. It is to lose your affection for him. It is to be allured even by the blessings of God to love the world, to be a friend of the world, to pursue the things the world loves and pursues. But remember from this little book of of Hosea that there's a God in heaven who seeks to allure you, to entice you, to draw out your love and affection toward him, even for those whose affection has been alienated. My prayer and my encouragement in this Christmas season is to keep yourselves in the love of God, to pursue the affection that he has and is drawing you toward and ultimately to live it out in every day of your relationship with him and others.